Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is music by Corey Jones for 12 Minutes. It's a creepy time loop game from Annapurna Interactive. The story of the game is controversial, just a tiny bit, but we are here for Corey's music, which caught my attention for its simplicity and beauty. Here's Corey. The game is called 12 Minutes. It's by Luis Antonio. It's um, a time loop thriller uh, akin to Groundhog Day, except you are playing the titular character, played by James McAvoy. The entire game takes place in a single one-bedroom apartment with a top-down view, and your vocabulary of things that you can do in the video game are immediately constricted compared to a lot of other video game experiences. So when you sit down and start clicking on things, it's reminiscent of old point-and-click adventure games, if anybody's played those, those LucasArt games uh, back in the day. but uh, the way that it's presented and the tone that it is uh, using to tell its story is uh, captivating in a way that I think is really unique and it was really fun to get and make music for. But as the player, the first time that you experience it, it is a time loop drama. And the very, very basis of it, without trying to get too spoilery for people that want to play it after listening to this episode, is um, James McAvoy's character, the husband, uh, comes home, gets some interesting, uh, wonderful, but or very scary news from his uh, lovely, lovely wife. And then a cop bursts in and uh, accuses her of murdering her own father. And then you get knocked out and then the evening starts over. And that's the first 10 minutes of the game. And you get to go from there, figuring out why the evening keeps starting over and why your wife is accused of murder. And the wife is played by Daisy Ridley and the very, very scary cop is Willem Dafoe, which is terrifying to listen to his voice on headphones over and over again for your job. Let me tell you, the emotional stress of hearing uh, Willem Dafoe beating up Daisy Ridley over and over again and making scary music to make it sound even worse. Oh, some calories I wasn't expecting on burning when I was working on this game. So it worked out really well. I'm really proud of how it came out. Yeah. So let's talk then about, you know, where you decided to go with the music right away. Like what were those initial conversations about and, you know, picking the, the main theme that recurs throughout? Absolutely. Um, so Luis had a lot of uh, tonal information already in his head because he'd been cooking this game up for a few years. He's... Um, a visual artist first. He was the visual art director, I believe, for The Witness, a very pretty, pretty game, and he did a really good job on it. And uh, he decided to make this story. He wanted to teach himself all game dev. Uh, He worked in game dev for a few years, and he taught himself programming and Unity and all the parts, and it was very ambitious. And about several years into it, I got to meet him at Day of the Devs. Um, I got to meet Luis uh, through my best friend James, who I was dating at the time, and uh, they had been co-workers in the past, and Luis is like, I've got this crazy game, and I'm looking for a musician, and James is like, I know a musician. So, as is the case in uh, a lot of video games in Hollywood and anything in the creative industry, it's uh, the first step in the door. It's always that uh, little slice of nepotism and hope that your skill set matches what you needed. and. Uh, after that, me and Luis hit it off, talked a lot about the project. I played the game for about six hours straight in its then state. And uh, he had a whole lot of placeholder music in it already at that point, because he'd been working on it for a long time, trying to get everybody to feel the emotions that he wanted to match with every scene. But without being a musician, all he had was movie soundtracks. So I had a whole lot of temp music that I got to play with right away. Ah, now did you like having temp tracks like that? I did. Yeah, I love having temp tracks, actually. <laughs> um, okay, so this is the part where, as a musician, I have to talk about the skill sets I've accidentally honed that led to me being able to do this thing here. And there's always a weird position to put in yourself, especially like in an interview context. Like, here's what I'm 
good at. And it's a weird thing to just say out loud, but um, I've been a music teacher for uh, about 15 years. So learning how to like package information, complex information about music and putting it into another human brain is a skill set I'm very proud of having home. So I have like little kids doing like seven, eight time crazy, crazy cool stuff that I'm super proud of being able to help them and able to do. Um, and with that skill set comes with my ability to um, play along as a session musician as well. And kids still learning how to count to four, but I'm going to match them because I'm going to be the rest of the band and make them feel like a rock star. So when I'm strumming or stuttering and trying to keep up with somebody else's performance, that was the hard mode of playing on stage with musician musicians, yeah. um, which is what I've also done. I've gone on tour with a bunch of bands with a bunch of different musicians as a multi-instrumentalist, which is a lot of fun. And uh, so when I have a song that has an album version and they say, all right, let's make it not boring. And I'm like, okay, let's jazz it up a little bit. Or as a little kid, I'll be given a classical music. I'll be like, I'm bored. I want to play a jazz version of it. And that was just the things I did to chase after dopamine. So now when I'm on a project that has a ton of temp music, I can be like, oh, I can just make a remix of this, but see how far away I can get from the source material to make it unique without any copyright claims, without accidentally being so close that I turn into Marvel music where they all sound the same because everybody uses the same temp music. So it was accidentally a skill set that I honed on the way to here. And when I was a video game full of a whole bunch of stressful stuff with temporary music already built in from stressful movies, I was like, I can do this. This is going to be very fun. So obviously the uh, temp music was classical or I, I should say acoustic in nature with, you know, orchestral yes. instruments. So, uh, so then what? Uh, after that was a whole lot of what we would qualify now as the tonal meetings where we're trying to figure out how to make the emotional resonance of what's happening on screen, especially during just the base moments of the game where you're just wandering around the apartment trying to solve all the puzzles. Uh, there's this one... I don't remember what the song was from, but it had uh, a cool uh, water in a bowl sound effect that was just creating some tension. That was along with a p octave pulse of just an up and down of a bass. So it's just something very thinking, very ponderous. I was like, yeah, this is puzzle game music. I can do this. So I replaced it right away with an electronic version without really consulting Luis. I was like, okay, let's see what I can do that matches this tone. I was really proud of the tone that I made, but I, it was before I got the notes about how it was going to be a uh, holistic, um, impressionistic orchestral thing, all naturalistic instruments. So I got that data and I was totally fine. That wasn't like an upsetting pivot. I was like, okay, I made a cool song, but now let's do it with violins instead. Yeah. So getting to find the ability to create sounds that sounded as realistic as possible became my new mission as a stage musician and as a session musician and as a producer and all those hats that I wear, that makes me sound like I'm bragging, but they're really just adjacent jobs. That's how music works. Yeah. Um, I've uh, become proficient at all these different instruments so that I know what makes them sound fake. I know what I can get away with doing a MIDI version of and what I can get away with just doing on a, a keyboard. Um, and it's mostly for my own ears sake. It's usually worth the effort, especially with past projects to just, learn the instrument like hey can you play a japanese ear who and i'll be like hey buy me one Let's see what i can do <laughs> yeah. i want to do it that's my that's what i love to do is making my hands play it with a different video game controller but make the same music come out every single time it's a super fun game for me so when it became violins i have an electric violin up there 
but I have not invested my 10,000 hours to get my bowing to be as accurate as I needed. So I can make some scary sounds. I can make the, all those uh, fancy uh, Italian words that uh, the staccatos and the marcatos and all those uh, shriek sounds that a violin can make. But like the long melodic tones, I just straight up didn't have the muscle memory for it. So I taped on a little fake fretboard onto my violin and I started doing some scales. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So that was the start. And I was very, very happy with how quickly I was able to make some progress on the violin, but I needed a whole orchestra. And it wasn't exactly a time in my life where I had access to a full orchestra in right. Ohio. In my previous life, I was doing the orchestra circuit all over the place, but I don't, I don't know if that's San Francisco orchestra, so I wasn't sure how that was going to work. So I ended up investing in a completely different skill set, and I want to pull it out on camera and describe it to the audio people. Um, this year is called a really block. It's a yeah. black squishy rectangle with a, a raised keyboard on top of it. And it's special because it is what we call MPE for those that are nerdy enough to uh, remember being excited about the transition from standard definition to HD um, television. Do you remember the rigmarole? Like you're going to get a box, bro. you're going to see, it's going to look so good. Yeah. It was a big deal to like all of America when it happened. Yes. <laughs> um, this is the transition from that uh, for MIDI. Before, we only sent like two or three numbers at a time. We would uh, hold up, a, I'm holding up a regular old uh, MIDI keyboard, and I would say, when you stop the, start the note, when you stop the note, and how hard you hit it. And that was like three numbers. Yeah. And we discovered about 10, 15 years ago that we can send a lot more than three numbers at a time to a computer. They're pretty good at numbers, it turns out. So now we can get all this uh, tonal data just off of how much you wiggle or thrust or uh, slide your finger off of all these different... Uh, new textured smart devices that we have a new generation of. There's some that are wind powered. That's just like a giant saxophone, but also has a keyboard on the side and you power it with your wind. So you have real organic uh, curves for when the sounds begin and end, just like a saxophone or a clarinet. Mm -hmm. So when you're controlling a fake clarinet sound, you're controlling it actually with your breath and it sounds organic. Same deal with this. I know how to wiggle sideways to make sounds like a real fretboard because I know how fretboards work. Sure. But I also wiggle it up and down to make it throb with a wind instrument if I got like a saxophone playing. So when I got a good enough synthesizer, I can use half of the verbs that I already know how to apply to a real instrument. And the computer kind of meets me halfway in the middle. And that's kind of yeah. like new to music technology. And it's really fun to play with. I know there's a lot of, you know, obviously piano plays a big role, which is nice. Um, and then there's cello and violin. And, uh, you know, the, the cello and violin sounds often are aleatoric, right? They're, they're like um, 20th century techniques. Um, did you do any of that live? You said you had the electric violin, so I assume some of that stuff you did. No, all of it was that squishy keyboard. Of me. All of it. Wow. Okay. All of it. Yeah. Okay. Cool. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. I would love um, to have a cello, but there's no room for it in my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, they ain't cheap. You could get a lot they are nicer not cheap. apartment. No, I think yeah. they cost more than my car. So I already yeah. have a French horn up there, and it's just collecting dust and just thinking about the investment that that was that I'm not doing right now. So, yeah, I don't need another one of those. <laughs> well, and horn was your main <laughs> instrument, right? It was. That was my major. I played French horn in a whole lot of orchestras. It was a time of my life. <laughs> yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that. Like, what made you choose that when you were younger? Did you start on horn, or did you start on trumpet? How did that work? 
Sure. Um, so in a lot of uh, school systems, we have what we call our instrument fittings around fifth grade. When you transition from everybody seeing if they're proficient enough to play hot cross buns on a recorder in a group, and then you, yeah. you assign them all the different voices that they could be cast out to, either vocal voices or wind instruments or percussion. Um, and all the music industry or all the music faculty all get together for basically a festival in the band room. And uh, it's just called the fitting. We, we've been doing it the same for about 100 years. It's the same thing. Um, I went in wanting to play saxophone because I thought saxophone was cool. I, you know, the 90s, whatever. And uh, it was determined that since I've been playing piano since a little kid, I had perfect pitch and it'll be useful for me to have an instrument that you need to have a little bit more ear training in order to make good sounds with. Yeah. So they decided that it would be a good utility and perhaps a good career investment for me to play French horn. Yes. They were right. I was a little bit grumpy. I didn't get to play sax, but that's how it started. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, horn is notoriously hard to play. Uh, as a trumpet player, I always loved messing around with it, but I always sounded like a trumpet player trying to play French horn, uh, <laughs> which is a thing. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's such a, a special instrument. And, um, you know, you mentioned you played in a lot of orchestras and just selfishly as someone who, you know, loves classical music, I'd love to talk about that for just a minute before we go back oh, to 12 uh, minutes. Heck yeah. We want to talk about how everything is still high school level drama or about the <laughs> the distribution methods of uh, published music. There's a lot to talk about. There's a <laughs> yeah. lot to talk about. <laughs> well, let's start though with uh, some of your favorites. As a horn player, like oh, what, sure. are, what are some of the, your favorite things to play? Uh, you know, Ooh, maybe composers or symphonies or, you know, 20th century or I don't even care what, what era Absolutely. you go to. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to say a whole bunch of uh, composer names and I don't know how many of them have milkshake ducked because I don't like follow any of the classical people on Twitter. I don't know how many of them are good people, but this is an internet show. So I'm just going ahead and say that yeah. caveat before I say the name of somebody like, oh, dude, he's canceled. Sorry. No, you're not yeah. allowed. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. Um, so there's uh, the pastoral themes of like uh, Eric Copland, uh, Fanfare for the Modern Man. Uh, the what's the foot the foot the football the baseball field movie that has the very famous name in it. Oh, uh, field of Dreams or Bull Durham. That's the one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's big open fifths, and they're just like building a wall of tones with as many different instruments that sound good as coupled voices together. Yeah. Nope clusters like in the 1920s like flapper singers that we have sometimes with the woodwinds of like the mid-century but instead big open fists but stacked really intentionally about what tone is making each note mm -hmm. and the french horns rolls uh as assigned by aaron copland are uh clean open tones that are not just athletics play so there's actually some like endorphins that you're getting out of it because they're long tones you gotta like work kind of hard on it so you get a little bit of a runner's high but also they're not boring you're doing big intervals and you're not just hanging out on like just the same six notes like Pacabell's Canon for 32 minutes it's like you've got some meat to it even though you're just showing off your big tones Sorry to interrupt, Corey meant to say that this next piece is by composer Frank Tickelly, not Eric Whitaker, but composer Frank Tickelly wrote this next piece. 
The other end of the spectrum would be like Eric Whitaker, another contemporary composer. Oh, He's yeah. done uh, a lot of some choral classical stuff. stuff. Like, um, yeah, 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 a lot of choral stuff. He's mm-hmm. done a couple um, uh, orchestral stuff. He did a, a suite called Vesuvius based off of the mountain. Um, and it's all like in crazy syncopated 9 8 time. And French horns get some runs in that. And it's fun to get to like show off what you can do with your fingers with that one as well. But it's all really, really sharp and coupled with other instruments. The voicing is really intentional. So you're part of a bigger whole. And it's not just like, hey, French horns, make a sound. Ah, yes. French horn sounds. Good job. Every once in a while, that's just what you get. You're like, I was glad I could help, I guess, for that one B flat. But yeah. you're welcome. But being a part of the song for those contemporary composers for French horn, it definitely definitely my favorite. So that's the two ends of the spectrum, the big long notes and the really fast technical ones. So with, uh, we're going to go back to 12 minutes, a little whiplash here. Right, we're talking about video games. Right, right, right. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, all of the tracks are numbered, Roman numerically. (laughs) Yes. So uh, talk to me about what what that's about. Does that represent each time the loop starts over with a little bit different mood? Yes, exactly. And I wish I had spent the extra 60 seconds to do this to turn on a piano uh, track over here so I can demonstrate. The melody that you have heard, I'm going to break it down and you're going to be either very, um, very charmed or very angry over how simple this little trick is. I'm going to show you real quick. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) So I'm just going to turn on just a cheap, cheapo piano just real quick. I just got to turn it on. Yeah, no worries. Are you ready for the three notes that the main theme song is going to be made out of? Yeah, no, I, I think I know them. One flat six, five, yeah. Exactly. So one, aug five, and then five or flat six, however you want to call it. But here's the time loop. I'm very proud of this little puzzle because it turned into a whole orchestra suite, but here's the little, little tiny bit. You start off with the root, your center, you know where you're going. Then you're immediately thrown off center with the augmented fifth, which is just a yucky interval to go to unless you're like uh, trying to do like a big giant major resolution like your radio head or whatever but if you're doing that one interval you're already off center but then i do it four times and the end is different here's the loop you just kind of stay in one place you try to break out of it by going a little bit bigger and you get a nice happy chord you're like ah we made progress but then you do it again and then you finally break the loop and you get the finally you get the happy resolution of the degree third resolving to the major chord yeah so it's the same loop but the end is different every time and how much context you can get out of that single final note being different than every single time is uh, something that I really like to play with just thematically when I'm writing uh, songs. Yeah. So when I had the whole orchestral suite of how to incorporate these three notes, how do I keep it familiar enough with what you are given in just the theme song and then edit it enough so that you still recognize it as a theme, but um, is more closely tied to what you're seeing in front of you tonally. So just starting with just those first three notes meant that I could uh, have a lot of breathing room with how I voiced just the first note that I played down. I could play like the first note, but have it be the root of a completely different chord. Yeah. Or have it not even be the root of a chord, but how the ways that you can use chord theory to uh, manipulate a melody without actually changing the notes that you're playing, just everything that goes around the main melody, was uh, basically a puzzle box for me. That was really fun to look at. (laughs) So all 12 of those uh, moments... Um, in the script that all have those really pivotal is the part where you have to dance around spoiler territory Um, all the pivotal uh, plot points Uh, there are about 
15 of them overall, all if you play sequentially all in a row, they don't necessarily hit as 14 plot points. That's just how it's organized for my brain's sake, because of those, uh, those are when the musical moments interact with the audience in a big way when something is playing out in front of you because you solved some part of the puzzle. Yeah. And finding ones that were unique enough that were able to be separated from previous events that you could tell that you're doing something that was rewarding as a new thing that you've unlocked, but also still recognizable as being of the same instruments and of the same orchestra and of the same melody meant that I was just kind of doing the same song, but remixing it over and over again. The same thing that I was talking about beforehand. Instead of with temp music, this time it was a song that I did. And I was like, okay, can I make 30 versions of a song? And that was, it's like baking. Just like, yeah, I can make 30 cakes. Sure. So this was your first game. This was my first game. It yeah. was different than anything ever uh, else that I had done, but I've been wanting to do video game soundtracks ever since I was a little kid. So it was pretty oh, fun. Nice. Yeah. So I so you're a gamer too, then obviously. Well, and I know that. Absolutely from your a gamer. Bio. Yeah. So what are you playing right now? Are you playing stuff right now? I am. I just moved, so I'm just basically kind of. I'm afraid to jump into any big like narrative adventures because I don't have the inertia yet. You know yeah. that feeling. So yep. like. Maybe I'll try The Witcher 3 again. Um, maybe it's finally time to jump into cyberpunk. Like, I need to beat Half-Life Alex. Like, the big games, they're on the shelf. But yeah. right now, I'm just, I'm just playing Raft. It's <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. It's nice. Just, just fishing for trash, avoiding the shark, just, just, build, just building. It's like Sims. It's nice. It's, just, it's pretty easy. Sweet. So, yeah, I'm just kind of dopamine hunting right now. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I know the feeling. I was Breath of the Wilding for quite some time there. And then... Just yes. d- due mm-hmm. to just personal things, I just didn't have the capacity for that kind of open-ended, kind of like what you're saying. Oh, like man. When you've got, when stuff in life, whether it's you're moving or just whatever kind of, I mean, that can take up too much bandwidth. And so I've been just back to Hades quite a bit. Oh, uh, I jumped into Hades, yeah. I just beat, um, what was the game right before that? Uh, Transistor or Pyre? No, after that one. The, Pyre. Uh, Pyre, there you yeah. go. I just beat Pyre. Oh, my oh, first cool. playthrough of Pyre. Oh, and, nice. uh, just yeah. delightful. They're still good writers. They're such good writers. And They're apparently they just got even better with Hades. So, yeah. I mean, they really <sighs> took a good it to another right now, level. Finally. Yeah. There's some good stuff out there. That's for <laughs> sure. So, yeah. I mean, what else do you want to say about 12 minutes? There's one really exciting thing that I wanted to share with people to have them uh, see if they could pay attention to is that there's. So there's a different way that the theme is presented in, um, okay, I can say one thing that won't be too spoiler. I'm sitting here crunching the math, making sure, uh, like who, who on the team would get mad if I talked about it. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. the presentation of when you hear different instruments is very, very, very intentional. You start off with just a suite of just orchestral sounds, but as you um, unlock more information that makes everybody behave a different way as you enter each loop, new instruments get added and um, kind of a Peter and the Wolf sort of situation where more information means an additional instrument has been added to the ensemble. Um, And the presentation of the austerity of like the 
theme song is supposed to be as capturing as like a theme song that um, would be like a, the a TV drama of uh, the most recent generation of TV dramas, like the Lord of the Rings or whatnot. Not Lord of the Rings. Oh my God, Game of Thrones. Oh, you Game know what I mean? Game of Thrones, yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you get exposure to the entire ensemble in the intro, and then suddenly everything gets taken away right before the clock strikes 12 and you get the title screen, you get just this really gentle version of the song. That's a really intentional contrast to show you where you are going next when you first enter the game. I'm really, really proud of how I read overall as the overall arc of the energy management of the game with the narrative of the five or six hours you take to play it. Yeah. But it starts off with the full orchestral suite, but then it goes all the way back down to bare bones at the beginning. And you don't get all the way up to close to that orchestral street until uh, right before you understand everything in the game. Mm. And then you get the music box version. Again, an anti-climax is very intentional. So you talked about how, you know, the instrument choices come in very intentionally. And if you're listening to the soundtrack from like start to finish and you hear piano in that first track and then piano is gone for several tracks. And when it comes back, it's impactful how that comes oh, back, thank you. you know, so um, so I can see what you mean by those choices being intentional and meaningful because it, it really just like disappears. And then a few tracks later, it's like, wow, this is it's back and it feels like, oh, it's back, you know? Yeah. <laughs> a restoration, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. I'm so glad that reads well, especially with just the listen through of the album. If you uh, separate the album as a listening experience from the game, I want it to be able to stand on its own as well because that's the music part of it. You want it to be a stand on its own. Right. And um, hearing you say that was deeply validating. Thank you, Emily. That's oh, very good. Kind. I'm glad, <laughs> yeah. And so talk to me then also about you know, the process, because you've made several albums, so you're aware of how to put together an album, but, you know, music construction for games being different than uh, any other media, uh, what was that like then to take the music that you made for the game and turn it into an album? That was very different. It was a very cool puzzle. And, you know, I'm going to switch microphones. Oh, okay. And get rid of the vacuum sound. I have switched microphone so to talk about the construction of albums from the past times that i made albums and that weren't uh, related to a video game constructing something that makes sense when you listen to it from beginning to end is an experience that i'm uh really enamored with just as something that stands on its own when you are listening to it as an album experience is uh, a criteria that I applied really early on when I started building my MP3 collection back in the day, because I'm the generation of LimeWire, where you used LimeWire to steal music, and then you used LimeWire to steal LimeWire Pro, so you could steal more music. Yeah. It was a time. It was a time, <laughs> the wild west of the internet. Um, so I still have this MP3 collection that I started like curating like a pet when I was a little kid. It was like a source of your self-worth when you are a teenager. If you had an iPod and you knew what you, it was on it, you knew every song that was on it, if you're a music nerd. 
Yeah. That was like my worth as a person when I was like 11 <laughs> or 12 or whatever. Yeah. Um, so having the albums that stand on their own that I don't want to listen to on shuffle, that I don't want to hear just the individual song. Every time the individual song comes up on shuffle, I'm compelled to want to listen to the whole album beginning to end. Yep. That's a criteria that I've always like been paying attention to. So as, uh, as an active listener, I guess so to speak. Um, so when I started wanting to make my own music that would be something that somebody else would consume. It had to be first something that I was comfortable with sharing with the world because how much of music is just my own emotional regulation. Sitting at home, thinking sad thoughts, playing piano. This is just how I think. This is how I process. And I'm like, I don't need the internet to be a part of that equation. I don't need that. <laughs> so with like my first album, Sea Monsters, it was uh, basically me figuring out how to emotionally affect people with just the guitar at the beginning of me and my guitar journey. So this it was actually that guitar over there um, that uh, I recorded on after about a year of just hard songwriting, trying to figure out how to make my fluency on piano, which is my first, first instrument come out on a completely different, uh, literally a different axis. Yeah. And um, figuring out how I could emotionally affect people with this resonance chamber that's strapped to your chest, which has a whole new vocabulary set. And it was the beginning of my, a very serious multi-instrumental career when I could figure out, oh, processing emotional information, making it come out of my hands uh, can be just as efficient for this strength with this instrument as opposed to this strength with this instrument and learning what all those different strengths are to figure out how to best express my musicality was basically the driving force for me to learn all these instruments, not to impress anybody, but to uh, make my own feelings be heard or whatever. (laughs) Um, and then, uh, but then when I had to learn how to like capture it, uh, because beforehand I was only a stage musician. I didn't care about microphones. I didn't care about microphone placements. Right. Um, acoustics only mattered for the stage performance of the day. It was, that was just that was basically spreadsheets. I didn't care about it at the time. <laughs> yeah. So when I suddenly had control over the whole thing, where I got to add different takes, and it wasn't just constrained by a loop pedal or something that I could perform live, suddenly I could have production. And uh, that was when things started really opening up with things that I could do with the computer's help with multiple sessions for recording things. Because before then, it was how much can I make in a single three-minute performance? Can I transform this entire orchestral suite into a single piano or this piano song into a guitar song or an open mic or things like that? So the condensing the music down to a single instrument was something that I'd already been doing in my free time. So when I had been packaging things as an album... Instead of it, me manipulating a crowd, which is where you have like, you know, real time feedback, which yeah. again, feels a little bit skeevy when you talk about it in those terms as a, someone who's been a musician on stage or in orchestras or whatever, you know what that push pull relationship is that you have with the audience. It's a mm-hmm. conversation. Um, and if they're just dead observers, you're not getting anything from it. Then all the fun is your own responsibility to create on stage. And then you just have to have fun and hope that they're having fun as well. You have to find <laughs> yeah. it for yourself. But when it's for, an unseen listener you really have to like run a simulation of a person in your brain while you're listening to it yeah and getting good at that was something that i accidentally honed by being a music teacher so i had to talk to people that didn't know anything about music and give them information with words that made sense to them over and over again so running a kid simulator in my brain or a non-musical grown-up not non-musical grown-up that's really reductive but something that is in the music industry uh or or something that's more art influenced um talking with them or imagining their perception of it based off of my own experiences is how i audited every single like chunk of audio that i had and then that obviously led to 12 minutes from doing all that emotional math and crunching but only doing on a violence and it was just more of the same it was really fun
Well, Corey, I just uh, have really enjoyed the music, and uh, I look forward to whatever you're up to next. I mean, do you, do you Thank what's you. what's lined up for you? Um, just finishing moving right now. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> yeah, I just did but, that uh, over uh, the summer, so I I can. Yeah, it's empathize. it's an event. Like I'm unpacked, but that's not the end of it. There, there's no. more things more things to do. You know, understand? I do. There's always more <laughs> to do. But yeah. hopefully, hopefully more games, and hopefully a lot more movies in the future. Anything narrative heavy. But um, I'm still on the hunt for the next big project. But I'm not in any big hurry because I'm having a lot of fun teaching kids still too. Yep. Getting settled and all that good stuff. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for chatting today. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. I'm a big fan of Level, and uh, I want to say I'm like a, a super fan, but like I said, for spoiler <laughs> reasons, I haven't finished Alex yet. So I haven't listened to every episode of Level yet. So I can't, so that would be a lie, but I've listened to a lot of it. So thank you so much for letting me be a part of it. Thank you for listening to Level with Emily. You can learn more about Corey Jones slash Neil Bones uh, and see a playlist and support Level with Emily at patreon.com slash level. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hi. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com, made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services. Composer Brad Gentle manages our YouTube channel. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media, Inc. Here at Level with Emily, we're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance. It features a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. You can hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.